It was, uh, it was 1930 when a guy named Clyde discovered he had an amazing name. Just kidding. <laughs> Clyde Tombaugh discovered a planet that would become the ninth planet in our solar system called Pluto. But much to the dismay of the stargazing global community, Pluto found itself in hot water or hot gas <laughs> in 2005 when a object larger than itself was discovered close by a cosmic neighbor, if you will. And in 2006, this spent this sent the stargazing IAU, International Astronomical Union, there's such a thing, turn to your neighbor and say, there's such a thing as IAU, <laughs> where they, under hot debate, with thousands of textbooks weighing in the balance, decided together, I don't know how they got the authority to decide, that Pluto was no longer a planet. Hey, where's my talk at, bro? <laughs> oh, that was, it was supposed to be there. As you can see, for about 90 years, it was happy. Until it was not happy. And you're thinking, what does Pluto have to do with Ephesians 3, 14 through 21? Is anyone thinking that, or are you just thinking I'm a total nerd? Um, as you saw on your handout, Pastor Scott and Janet were supposed to preach a passage this weekend, and he called me or texted me a, just a couple days ago and said, we're both terribly sick with a cold and bronchitis, and they were going to preach a passage out of Ephesians 4, and so I immediately got to running, and I've been living with this passage for about 10 years as far as having it memorized but as I was running, I remembered in my studies that the Greek word that Paul uses like seven times in the book of Ephesians is the word plutos. <clears throat> and it's this word that means rich, abundant, overflowing. <clears throat> and so then as I was running, and, and, and as Pastor Chad uh, Jordan just shared, I, I love to run, I love to run, and I love to pray. The Lord whispered in my spirit, Tell them that Pluto is a planet that every believer is supposed to live out of. I said, okay, that's awkward and weird. <laughs> and by that I mean the very first temptation in the garden that the accuser that the Satan incited humanity to believe about God was that he is restrictive, that he is stingy, that he is holding out on humanity, that he is afraid of their potential, and that he's keeping the best for himself. A picture of God that could not be further from the truth. If you agree, say amen. amen. And so this idea that Paul uses, he uses it in Ephesians 1, 7, the riches of his grace, plutos of his grace. It's this idea of a, a house or a dwelling that is just bustling at the seams, overflowing with grace. He doesn't know what to do with the grace. He has so much of it. 
It's the God who, when we were deserving of wrath, he goes on to say in Ephesians 2.4, we deserve wrath, we deserve, we deserve death, but God who is rich in mercy. Did you know he's not just rich in grace, he is rich in mercy. Grace is getting what we don't deserve or what we don't earn. Mercy is he doesn't give us what we deserve. Come on, somebody say, I need mercy today. How many know that God is Plutos? He is rich in both grace and in mercy. And then it goes on to say that in Christ are hidden all the riches of God. So it's not just that God is rich in grace, Plutos, that's the whole point with the planet. Hopefully that connection, Pluto is for real and it's still a place we're meant to live and believe in. He's rich in grace, he is rich in mercy and then Paul just comes out and says that, you know what, Jesus is the treasure that unlocks all of the riches of God in one location, in one place. And then he talks about that God is not just rich in grace, rich, and that Jesus is rich in the fullness of God, but also that God himself is full of the riches of glory, of radiance, of beauty, of splendor, and of holiness. And so the Apostle Paul in three chapters is unpacking in seven different ways that God is rich. He's Pluto. He's Pluto. And at every turn, I just kept thinking of this quote from A.W. Tozer, and it's on the screen. It says that the low view of God, a God who is restrictive, who's not Plutos, but who is stingy, holding out on us, that life in him is somehow diminished or stinky or less than, a low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. Does everyone, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty or of the riches of God will go a long way toward curing them. And what Tozer is saying here is this, is that when we believe that small viewpoint of God, when we think that he's holding out on us, when we believe that life in him is restrictive, not abundant, when we choose to live from the planet of scarcity instead of the Plutos, the planet of God's abundance and glory and riches of grace and mercy, did you know that that opens up our life for a hundred lesser evils to satisfy that craving to believe that there's a God who's good and that there's a God who's for us? And so he goes on, he says this, for this reason I kneel, here's the passage, and we're just gonna unpack it very briefly. For this reason, he prays it. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. How many know that's a pretty darn good prayer? But he goes on. As he goes on. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So the whole point of my talk this morning is that you would choose to live on the planet called Pluto. It's cheesy. I hope you are ruined thinking about Pluto the rest of your life. Maybe you haven't thought about, you know, being bitter that in 2006 it lost its planetary status. But I want you to know that God in Christ invites us to live out of the abundance, the Plutos of God's riches of love, grace, glory, and mercy. God is rich in grace. He is rich in glory. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. Turn to someone and say, come on, my God is full all the time. Just say, my God is full. My God is full. My God is full. We already talked about that. The vision, look at that. I just want to say it again, just so you can hear it. This, the whole talk hinges on this. The vision of God that humanity has been buying into since the beginning is a cosmic, this is in the Greek, I studied it really. <laughs> I can say that. The enemy wanted us to think that God was restrictive, holding out on us. Did you know, though, that God is the most cheerful, benevolent, rich, op he's opulent in showing kindness and goodness and grace and mercy and love. If you agree, say amen. And what Paul has been arguing seven times in three short chapters is that the God that Jesus reveals is exactly opposite. God, the, the God that Jesus reveals is a God who is over the top, generous and good with God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. He is a cheerful giver. And someone just needs to know that that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus today. You may have thought, man, God has it out for me. God doesn't have my best interests in mind. God, he's just, if I follow him, that means I have to give up on my dreams, and no, you give up on your sin and your desire to rule your own life, and he gives you all of heaven's resources to reach your potential. God is an all-loving father, all-powerful, all-knowing, and he's inviting us to live on the, out of the Plutos, the planet of his rich and unfathomable, inexhaustible love and grace today. What's so significant is chapter one, three through 10, and now chapter three, just two chapters later, when Paul wants to get the church in on the deepest dynamics of what it means to be a Christ follower, he doesn't talk at them, he prays it into existence. Did you know there are things that talking and theorizing and even studying and reading about can only take us so far, but did you know that the things of God, the depths of his heart, one of the greatest tools that is almost many times dormant in most of our lives is entering into that place of prayer where the Holy Spirit becomes our divine escort into the love of God the Father revealed through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Did you know that there are treasure houses in the heart and character and nature of God that are only accessible, not on the run, but as we press in and we make a home in his presence and say, God, I wanna see you for who you really are. 
And here what I find so significant is that the Apostle Paul is reading, writing this letter to a church while he's in a dungy, dingy, stinky, probably rat infested, I don't know, I can't find it in the commentary, but you know, I doubt that the jailers cared too much about the conditions of the prison, but it's in this lowest place that he gets drawn up to the highest place in the spirit. Did you know that your circumstances do not dictate your vision of a glorious God who is good in every capacity? What's so significant to me is that Paul is writing this prayer from the dungeon from despair. Did you know that even the darkness, Psalm 139, is as light to the God who is light? Did you know that even in the darkness, maybe that you're facing this morning, God's Holy Spirit can give you a revelation of the goodness of Jesus that can catalyze your heart to believe again that he who promises faithful, he's going to deliver you and get you through. What's so significant is that all of the heavy theological lifting in all of Paul's letters, 13 of them, the heaviest parts that are filled with some of the most amazing dynamics of the gospel, he turns them into a prayer. And why does he do this? I'm convinced he knows because Paul knows that at the end of the day, humanity, our little role in the kingdom, one of us plants, another waters, but come on, who is the one who alone can make truth grow in the heart of a believer? And so when Paul gets to his heaviest parts, the most amazing parts that no poet has been able to even scratch the surface on for 2,000 years, he says, I'm gonna pray this into their hearts. I'm gonna pray it. I'm gonna ask God to lift the blinders, to break through the familiarity, to break through their, as Tozer said, their low view of thinking. And I am praying, God, that they would get a glimpse of the God who is rich in mercy, love, glory, grace, and goodness. Prayer, why does he pray? Did you know that prayer is all about relationship? Turn to your neighbor and say, prayer is about relationship. Prayer, he prays, he kneels before the Father in his, God knows, his dungy, stinky prison. And right in that dungy place, he is encountering a relationship with the holy, glorious God revealed in Jesus Christ. Prayer takes us from beyond the place of being filled with fear, insecurity, doubt. How am I going to make it? How am I going to pull through? When's the check going to come in? Prayer takes us from this plane where everything's dependent upon us. Come on, somebody testify. And it gets us into the place where we say, God, what are you doing? What are you seeing? What are you thinking? And how are you going to lead me in and through this? Listen, this is the reason, says, for this reason, I kneel. And Paul tells us in multiple places, he didn't just kneel once. Did you know that God in Christ invites us into a lifestyle of prayer? Now, if you think prayer and if your immediate mind just goes to this and this, how many know you can kneel in prayer, but how many know you work eight or nine hours a day and your boss might get grumpy at you for kneeling if that's what it means to pray? Only what it means to pray. But Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. And what is he saying by saying that? He's saying be cognizant, become aware, posture yourself all the time under the spout where the glory pours out so that relationship is sustained and nurtured and taken forward to greater levels of friendship and love and communion. He's saying I kneel 
He did, sure, he was kneeling, but he lived a lifestyle of constant desire and awareness for a relationship. Did you know that you can have as much of God as you want? And to many of us, that sounds like good news, but for most of us, how much of God is left unexplored because we are too satisfied by other pursuits and other loves? Can we get real with each other? And Paul is kneeling and he's praying and he's inviting them into this quest, this discovery to discover the riches, the plutos of God's grace and his mercy and his love. He has already showed us in this little tiny letter of Ephesians that the distance between us and God has been erased. Come on, somebody. That the distance has been erased. The barriers between us and God have been demolished. The problem of sin has been destroyed through the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. The problem of our slavery and our bondage to sin has been overcome through his shed blood. The problem of the race, the racial, ethnic divisions that have ravished humanity have been broken through by the cross where he has put to death our hostility against each other. And Jesus himself now through the cross is remaking humanity around himself. And he tells us, you guys, come to me in him and through faith in him. We can approach God in relationship 24 and 7. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's good news. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Did you know that we have a huge family around the world, those who've confessed and believed in Jesus as Lord? To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. Someone say, he gave me a right. Come on, to become children of God. Not born of natural descent or a human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And I want you to know the good news that you have a father today. Come on, someone say, I've got a father, and he is the father of glory. He's the same father of Jesus. He is the source of your identity, the source of your security, and the source of your inheritance, both now and forever. Because we have a father of glory that we have access to through God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit, we no longer have to go about selling ourselves to the highest bidder, looking for identity, for security, and for provision, and for meaning and purpose. We can come right to the Father and receive the favor that he has placed upon his beloved Son, that in the Son, the Father says, I am all that you need. My voice is the only voice that matters when it comes to your identity and what you think of yourself. We have a father. Someone say, I've got a father. I've got a father who, unlike the enemy, has painted him to be, I have a father who didn't spare anything to communicate his love to me. How will he not also, along with giving up his son Jesus, graciously give us all things? He has given us everything in and through Jesus. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that he's got more on tap. Should you choose to posture yourself to just continue to receive from the goodness of his plutos, the riches of his love and his mercy and grace. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell and your hearts through faith. How many know that God in Christ doesn't just want to be 
a part of your life. He wants to dwell within you. Did you know that there's a difference between pray this short little prayer that took you 25 seconds? Sure, it took you 35 years to live in sin and for yourself, but pray this 10-second prayer, just get a little bit of Jesus and go about your way. Did you know that is not the gospel of Jesus? Did you know that the good news of God, the good news of Jesus is that we get to surrender the mess that we've made in our sinfulness and our pride and our rebellion, and we get to receive all of God in and through Jesus Christ, that he doesn't just come and, you know, I'll just take a square inch of your heart. He wants to dwell. That word dwell is the idea of the temple in First Chronicles 7 and 8. When the, when the temple was constructed and the glory of God descended in a cloud, nobody could go about business as usual. Did you know that God does not want us to be able to go about business as usual? He wants to wreck our lives with his goodness and grace. He wants to dwell in my heart. Come on, someone say, he wants to dwell in me. He doesn't want to just be a visitor. He doesn't want to stop by from time to time when it's convenient for us. He wants to make a home in you and a home in me. And Paul is praying this prayer while he's in prison. And he's thinking, man, it doesn't matter what's happening on the outside of me. I am a target, a bullseye for God's dwelling place, even in this stinky place. Even in this low place of persecution, I don't know how I'm going to get delivered out of prison, but I just know that I am prime real estate for King Jesus to dwell in. This, vi this vision of a stingy, small-minded, cosmic bully God, the vision that the enemy cast over Adam and Eve has been overcome through the vision of the Father that Jesus Christ has given us clearly. Listen, he is not a trickle God. Come on, someone say, he's not a trickle God. No, no, no. He's a Niagara Falls God. That, like, that's you and me in that little boat. And the Plutus of God, the overabundant, never-stopping, unrelented treasure house of God in Christ. Did you know that we don't have a trickle God, we got a Niagara Falls God. Turn to your neighbor and say, I got a Niagara Falls God. He is more abundant, he is more powerful, more abounding than our tiny little brains can wrap our heads around. Tozer said, the reason why we get so satisfied with sin and idols and idolatry is not because they're more alluring, it's because our vision of God is too small. Our vision of God, we think he's holding out. We think life in Jesus is less than. I'm telling you, Jesus is life. How could the one who invented life, how could life in him be anything more than what he designed and purposed from before creation? Jesus is life. It's who he is, John 1, 4. He's the originator, the author, and the finisher. Life is found. He's the one who, like, life leapt out of him, and he spoke, and creation came. Do you not think that when we surrender to him, that life explodes with purpose, meaning, and goodness, and grace, and love, and meaning? God always and only, I love this, back to that passage, he always will strengthen and empower whatever it takes to further the relationship between us and him. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. He doesn't just empower your idea or your whim. I pray that he may strengthen you with power through the spirit and your inner being. This idea of inner being is this place of your conscience. Come on, how many, how many, have to, how many are ever at war with their conscience? And am I the only one? Oh, just, 
You're, Chad, you're a failure. You are what you, Chad, you, you're not a good, Chad, you, Come on, how many know that the Holy Spirit wants to touch us in that place? Come on, how many need a new hard drive? How many need a new programming? And he's saying, I want the Holy Spirit's power that reveals the plutos of God, the riches of God. I don't want it just to touch your occasional thought. I want the very filter system of every thought to go through the lens of my unfathomable, rich, and opulent, and overabundant love for you. I want every thought, every time you think about me and yourself and the world and your purpose in it for my glory, I want the filter system, the lens through which every thought passes is that you are favored, loved, chosen, and beloved in and through my son, Jesus Christ. And he says, it's gotta take the Holy Spirit. It's not an occasional thought. I have a decent thought about myself or decent thought about God. Or He wants every thought to be touched by the powerful love of Jesus. This is why he said, I want you to dwell in them. What if we stop thinking primarily from the place of our lack or insufficiency, or our fill-in-the-blank, whatever narrative you believe, and what if we launched from Plutos constantly? What if we lived with that cognizant awareness that, man, my God is not holding out on me. He's already giving me the Son, Jesus. How will he not give me everything I need to follow him faithfully, overcoming every barrier and obstacle? Jesus doesn't want a tiny corner This doesn't work on the run. He wants you to give the occupancy rights up over your heart. Come on, but someone, come on, someone testify. But he's a good owner. Come on, he knows how to maintain, he knows how to update. Come on, somebody. He knows how to update the furniture. Come on, how many know when he transforms us and he comes to dwell in our hearts, he doesn't just give us new paint, he gives us a new nature. He doesn't just like, you know, I don't know about your house, but he doesn't just, you know, I'm a terrible, like the plaster and, you know, filling the nail holes. He tears the wall down and builds one up that is impenetrable. And then on the wall is marked with his promises of provision and his presence and his power, and he'll never leave me. He wants to break in. He wants occupancy rights so that he can dwell. Come on, someone say, he can dwell in me. And he goes on to pray as if he hadn't already touched everything in this amazing prayer. But he goes on and he says this, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together. Come on, someone say together. Come on, I, I love the personal, private, me and Jesus. I have amazing times of prayer. I love reading my Bible, memorizing my, I love studying. But did you know that there is something God wants to do at Cornerstone that is the together? Come on, you need to hear me here. He wants us together to become rooted and established in love. Yes, you, personal, private, me, personal, private, but he wants to establish something amongst a people that puts the darkness on notice and that the light of Jesus has a place to break forth on into our lives, into our city for transformation. I pray that together with all, come on, someone say all. No one on the outside did you know that maybe you're here today, you've, you've, you've viewed God and you look at people who are spiritual and you think, oh, I could never. How many have lived with an I'm an always perpetual outsider mentality? Do I have anyone else besides myself? My hands are raised, man. Instagram is a killer. I'm on the outside. My church isn't as big. My, I don't have that much of a reach. Listen, I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit wants you to bring you in on what God wants to do uniquely in and amongst you and through us. You don't have to be a perpetual outsider. And the Holy, he wants us to grasp. Someone say grasp. 
I don't know how we're going to grasp it, but he's going to help us. How wide, read it with me, and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of, so read that part again, of all the fullness of God. So you tell me, you can be a theologian here. How do you know something that's beyond knowing, that surpasses it? Um, My wife turned 31 years old yesterday. Yeah, that's that's worth clapping. I think that's good. How many know when I saw her 13 years ago, she was wearing a long sleeve gray shirt. Her hair was pulled back. She had minimal makeup. She had big old gold hoop earrings. Come on, somebody, testify. Come on, how many know the world don't need a bunch of religious people who know all the right things? They need to see a people in love who remember the details. She walked into Pismo Bowl and the heavens parted and the angels began to sing. (laughs) How many know that 13 years ago she was a treasure? And she's, she's a treasure. I'm still discovering the beauty and the radiance of how God made her to be. How many know infinitely more God? How many know I knew about him when I was 16, when my only options were church or school and I surrendered to Jesus? (laughs) Side note for parents, give them an ultimatum, church or school. You never know what you'll get. Amen. But did you know my vision of God over these 18 years have expanded and expounded as I gone on a journey of discovering the depths and the widths of the love of God revealed through Jesus? And did you know that you have not arrived here today, that Paul's prayer is relevant for you and for me? There's more for you should you choose to pursue and explore. There's more of God's love. There are more depths, heights. You have not seen the summit yet. There's more. Keep pressing in. There's more. Did you know that God saved us because he loved us? Therefore, we are rooted and established in love. But did you know he saved us not just from something? He saved us for relationship. Turn to your neighbor and say, he saved me for relationship. And the Spirit's power is, yes, to live the life of Jesus and to do the normal kingdom stuff, but the power of Jesus always directs and points us to the unrelenting love of Jesus, the powerful love of Christ. I'm almost done. I already said that. I skipped it. And so the question is, he pray, he's praying that we'd be filled with God. How do you know you're full of God? You know the most chapter and verses? You know, the most theories and ideas, and you can quote all the books and the latest fads, or you've been to the conferences. How do you know if you're full of God and Paul's prayer is being answered in your life? You know it by your life being full of love. Come on, how many know that God never hits the switch off of his nature being love? Everything he is, everything he does, everything he speaks is through his goodness and his love. 
Come on, if God is love, 1 John 4, 16, and this is how we know what love is, by looking at Jesus on the cross, 1 John 3, 16, and that sacrifice, Hebrews 9, 22, was once and for all time, how many know that God doesn't go in and out of love? Come on, your earthly father or mother may have gone in and out of love, but God the Father never goes in and out of love. If you agree, say amen. I'll be loving today. I'm in a bad mood. How many know that's what separates God from everything else? He's never in a bad mood. He loves us. He's for us. He's drawing us, constantly drawing us to himself so we could live in his fullness. How do you know if you're full of God? Is your life full of the love of Christ? Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, love looks like something. Love is not a theory. It's not just some whimsical idea. Love is tangible in the practical, everyday stuff of life. Love. And then he closes. I'll get down to the bottom. All that stuff is good, but you guys are ready. Read this part with me, and we're done. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Did you know that if and when God will be glorified in the church, he's gonna be glorified out there? Let me say that again. God wants to be glorified in the church. Help me, help me, church, so I don't have to do all the hard lifting here. What are ways that we in the church do not bring glory to God? Just come on, help me. Division, offense, how else? Judgment, gossip, help me, come on. Complaining, strife, competition, pride, comparison. How many know that the church is not immune from every other problem and propensity that the world faces? We just have divine power to do it a different way. And I'm telling you, God will never, ever, ever. He has tied himself, just like he did to Israel, and now Israel enlarged to include Jew and Gentile, the whole nation, the whole world. God has tied his purposes and his, and his plan to the church, and he is saying, I want this love to so ravish your hearts together that if I will be glorified in the church, that you together will be able to overcome all of the big laundry list that we just listed, that we would choose the way of Jesus instead, and that when we wrong, if and when we sin against each other, we don't retaliate, retaliate, retaliate. we are reconciled. Come on, somebody, how many know Christ would be glorified in his church? That instead of fighting, we chose forgiveness. That instead of choosing to get even, we chose to serve. These aren't just theories. This is modeled in the life of Jesus Christ. He's our prototype. He's the king. Instead of division, there would be community. Instead of hatred, there'd be healing. Instead of racism that Paul was addressing in the church in Ephesus, there would be the realization of beauty and diversity. Instead of the haves and the have-nots, there would be place at the table of the Lord for every single person to belong. And so Paul says, this is beyond us. That's why I'm praying for the power of God that can help us do more than we could ever get to through a theory or through a p policy. How many know that God's Holy Spirit alone can bring us to a place that we bring glory to God? How many know that only God can form and transform us from the inside out together where we can bring glory 
to God. Now to him who is able. I wish I didn't say that. Look at this. So you can see it. Everyone say now to him. Who is able. You know what I wish it said? I didn't, Paul didn't ask me and neither did the Holy Spirit, but now to him who will inevitably do. Come on, how many know it's able because he's inviting us into relationship? Come on, how many know able is not necessarily inevitable? Turn to your neighbor and say, able is not the same as inevitable. Yes, it's inevitable that God and Christ will be exalted and glorified, but in this local context, it is not, he is able, it's not inevitable that we would get caught up in this love relationship with him and with each other. But come on, how many know the promises that he is able? So it's never on his end. Remember the Niagara Falls picture? He's got plenty of grace, help, mercy, truth, forgiveness, reconciliation. He's got all we would ever need. He is able. Someone say he is able to do immeasurably more. How many have a big imagination? Anybody? Come on, raise your hand. Right, you got a big. Times infinity, right? Immeasurably more than what? According to whose power? You mean when I want to get even, that there's a power that can help me not to choose to get even, but to choose to forgive? Come on, let's get real. That's exactly what we mean. According to his power. His power is working in us, love around us, and ultimately his love is meant to flow through us. And in every church, in every age, the church must reconsider and recalibrate along these lines. Every church of every age, there are different forces of darkness. There are different insecurities and schisms and divisions that try to seep in. Did you know that we can, it's never cruise control, that every church of every age has to posture themselves in this place of prayer to say, God, remake us and renew us from the inside out. Make us a place where you long to dwell and where your spirit has free reign to do what only you can do.